When we talk about missions, I just want to make sure that you understand what I'm talking about. When, when we talk about why missions, um, we're going to be talking about missions in the context of evangelism, about how we share our faith in Christ, but also uh, talk about missions in regard to overseas missions, uh, short-term, long-term missions, domestic missions, and also church planting. So that's kind of the context that we're talking about tonight, but most of where I'm going to lean is going to be in the context of evangelism and personally sharing our faith in Christ. Our, our daughter, uh, Lori and I's daughter, uh, Hannah, uh, when she was a baby before, this is a picture of our little girl right here, very happy, but uh, this is Hannah uh, a, a long time ago, Hannah. But when, uh, when Lori and I, um, when Lori was pregnant with Hannah, of course, we had ultrasounds and, and those kind of things. Um, and one of, the, one of the times we went to the doctor, we had an ultrasound, uh, sonogram, whatever, and uh, they found out that, that Hannah had some kind of uh, birth defect. Um, there was something in her system that just wasn't working right. And so the doctor just wanted to make sure, you know, during the delivery that everything was going to be okay. So um, Lori was kind of in a special unit and just watching everything very carefully. Well, Hannah was born and, uh, and the doctor said, well, everything looks fine. Like everything looks okay. Um, and so we just kind of forgot about it. And then about a couple months later, uh, Hannah started, um, she would get sick, like a lot of kids do, like lots of babies do. She would get sick, but her recovery time would take longer and longer. And uh, she would just get a common cold and it would turn into just something much worse. And so we would find ourselves at the doctor's office quite a bit where um, we would be constantly trying new antibiotics to try to clear up whatever was going on with Hannah. And so then uh, a few months went by and we finally took her to um, our pediatrician to do a full workup and they discovered that Hannah did in fact have a birth defect that that didn't go away at birth, but actually had persisted and, and gotten worse. And the birth defect was really something simple. There was, there's a little uh, tube, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I have no idea how this stuff actually goes, but there's a little tube that runs from your kidneys and there's a little flap there that when, um, when there's toxins in your body, it, it, it blocks those, it flushes them out. What would happen is that little flap um, next to Hannah's kidney didn't work properly. So what would happen is toxin would, toxins would flush back into her system, and then she would become septic. If you know about anything about becoming septic, that's not a good thing, right? You just have all these toxins in your body, and it's really hard to get rid of those. So um, the antibiotics just weren't working. We tried all kinds of different things, and it just weren't working. So this is several months um, after she's born, and things just are not getting any better. So we ended up going to the hospital one time when she's septic, she's getting worse. And so we end up in the, in the hospital in the um, uh, NICU where they now are trying to run a course of antibiotics through her. Um, you know, she's just an infant, so they're trying to put IVs in her. Um, her arms are so tiny and her veins are so small, they keep blowing out veins in her arm. And so eventually what they do is they shave a little part of her head and put the IV in the top of her head. That's when, as parents, you kind of lose it, right? You're just like, this is awful. Like, my, our child has an IV on the top of her head to try to flush this stuff out. And so eventually what happens is um, we get a hold of a specialist and um, they do a surgery that re, um, repairs the flap and everything's great. So 
Hen is healthy. She's um, married now and is doing really well. And uh, so that, that was done. But let me just tell you, um, for those of you who aren't parents, I know there's a few parents in here, but for those of you who aren't parents, let me just tell you this, is that when your child is sick, when they're sick, and especially when they're an infant and they're so helpless, you will do almost anything to make them feel better. You will do almost anything. I can tell you with my daughter, at that age when she's just sick, she's laying in a hospital, like there is nothing I would not have done. Nothing I wouldn't have done. There's not any distance that I wouldn't have gone to get the right kind of medication to cure her. There is, um, there's nothing that I wouldn't have traded for her to be well. There is no amount of money that I would have, wouldn't have paid to make her better. Why? It's because the people that we love, we will go to tremendous lengths for people that we love that are helpless and sick to find the cure. I really believe that's where the Apostle Paul is when he begins Romans chapter 10, verse 1. You see, when we, we read this passage, just verse 1 here, it says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. His heart's desire and his prayer, his earnest prayer is for the Israelites that they might be saved. Now, when I, when I hear the Apostle Paul write this and say this, I don't think that he's, he's saying that his, his heart's desire, that his earnest prayers are for some kind of um, just abstract group of people. I think when he's talking about his heart's desire and his earnest prayer for the Israelites, he's thinking about specific people. I mean, you think about the life of Paul, where he's been from the time of of his conversion all the way back. You think about the people that he would have encountered. Think about um, his schoolmates at rabbinical school. You think about people that the, the, the men that he would have worked with that would surround him in the synagogue, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his time, his family members who, who had a long lineage of Jewish history. He was steeped in, in education and, and, and wealth. You think about his neighbors and the people that he would have known. I, I don't think that he's thinking in abstract terms when he's thinking about, when he's praying about, and when he's, his heart's desire is for the Israelites. I think he's actually thinking of specific people in his life. That they're real people. And so when we ask the question, why missions? Like, why do we engage in evangelism? Why do we engage in in overseas and domestic missions, why do we, what do we engage and invest in church planting? Like, why do we do those things? I think the answer is very simply, it's because our heart's desire is for those that we love to be saved. Why do we do it? Because we love the people around us. And our heart's desire, our earnest prayer is that the people, not abstract groups of people, not the invisible people around us, but the people that you actually know, your coworkers, your family, your friends, your neighbors, the people that you can put a name and a face to. See, that's the fire that allows us to be engaged in mission for God, is when we have actual real people that come to mind. So we can join with the Apostle Paul. 
We pray for people, and we are, are begging God our Father to intervene and to, to do a miraculous work in the people's hearts and minds of people that we love. And we say, God, do something there. God, would you change their hearts? Would you open their, their minds to see you? We want to see our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. It's a mission of the heart. It is not abstract. Who is someone that, that comes to mind that you would say, my heart's desire, my earnest prayer is that that person would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? Who's that that comes to your mind? Is it someone that sits next to you at work? Is it a family member who seems so far away from Jesus? Is it a friend who you desperately are crying out to God, 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 would you, would you do something in their life? As a parent, like, um, when I think about those in whom we've invested our lives in and that we, our earnest prayer and our greatest heart's desire was to see them come to faith in Christ, for Lori and I, it was our children. Like, that's the first and foremost. Like, if you're, if you're a parent, like, your primary and first missionary um, uh, journey is in your own home. That's, that's, your, that's, your, that's your mission field right there is in your own home. And so we have three kids. So you met Hannah on the screen already, but we also have, uh, she's our youngest, and then we have Jonah, who's our middle. Um, he's single. Uh, and then our oldest is Noah. He's married, and they have our first grandchild and very soon our second grandchild. So we're pretty excited about that. But we have three children. So when they were growing up, Lori and I, of course, not just because we're pastors and, and serve in the church, but our earnest desire, our greatest prayer was that our own children would have a faith of their own. Not a faith that was part of their parents, like part of our lineage of being um, believers and followers of Jesus. We wanted our children to have a faith of their own that at some point in their life, they would, they would believe and call on the name of Jesus and give their hearts to Him and be saved. That was our prayer, our earnest prayer, and our greatest heart's desire was for our own children. Now, just because they grew up in a pastor's home, right, it was no guarantee that they were going to come to faith in Christ. And amen from the pastor's kids here, right? Right? There's no guarantee of that. So it was our, our earnest prayer, our greatest heart's desire. So we'd, at times, we'd have opportunities, of course, in our own home to share the gospel and to talk to the kids about Jesus. And, and Lori did such an amazing job along the way of being able to talk to our kids and um, while she was driving them to school or just any opportunity. She did an amazing job of instilling um, uh, faith in Christ in our kids. But each one of our kids at their own time came to us and said, um, you know, mom and dad, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I want to give my heart to Jesus. And, uh, and so uh, Jonah, our middle son, um, we were approaching Easter and uh, our oldest son Noah had um, confessed Christ and put his heart, gave his heart to, to Jesus and was, ba- was going to be baptized on Palm Sunday. It was, it was going to be great. We were having all our family and friends come and it was just going to be a great joyous occasion. And so Jonah, seeing that his older brother's doing it, but very independent, our middle son Jonah is very headstrong, has his own mind, he's going to do this on his own. But Jonah, Jonah came to us and said, Mom and Dad, um, I too am ready to become a Christian. And so we talked to him, made sure he understood what this is about. He's about eight or nine years old, and he's making this decision on his own. And so we talked to him, and so um, but he um, adamantly um, decides that he is going to be baptized on Easter. 
So this is the week after our oldest son Noah's going to get baptized. And so we, you know, we, we sit him down and we're like, Jonah, that's, that's great. We're so excited. But, you know, Easter is, uh, that's a kind of a big Sunday. You know, like we've got a whole like choir and, you know, it's kind of a full Sunday and, you know, and we're not sure that our family's going to be able to come back another week. And, you know, we're not trying to talk him out of it, but it's just like, it's Easter, right? Like it's Easter. And Jonah just like brings it straight to us. He says, he says, well, if Jesus was resurrected on Easter Sunday, why shouldn't I get baptized and be resurrected on Easter Sunday too? We're like, okay, you win. That's, he just pulled the trump card and, and uh, laid that one down. So we're like, okay, that's a great, that's a great Sunday to get baptized. So, so it was a great joy then, um, that Easter Sunday then, um, to hear Jonah's confession of faith and then um, as his dad to be able to baptize him in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing as a parent to be able to baptize your own children. And I hope each one of you have an opportunity to be able to do that for your own kids or a family member or someone. Like it's, a, it's an amazing, incredible opportunity to do that. Um, but sometimes the people that we love aren't necessarily the people in our home. Sometimes it's not people that we, we actually even know. Sometimes it could be people halfway across the world that somehow God knits our hearts together and we just love them because God's put them in our path. I, I met this young lady, um, I was on a mission strip, uh, I was church planting at the time, and uh, there was a church plant in um, South Korea, in uh, the southern part of South Korea, it was in Busan. And so our church had went over, we were helping this church plant, they were reaching a lot of international students, so we went over. And part of our mission trip was that we were going to do ESL classes, English as Second Language classes. So we met with students, and I met this young lady who was from Vietnam. And um, it very quickly became apparent that um, uh, Jesus was not in her vocabulary. Like, she just didn't, she didn't know anything about Jesus. She had never been to church before. It was amazing how someone that I had never met before, had never met her before, I didn't know her language. I didn't know her background. Her cultures couldn't have been any more different. But, but God begins to knit our heart together, and we have this rapport so that I have the opportunity over and over and over again to share the gospel with her. Now, I don't know where she ended up with in her faith. Like, we, we were only there for a couple of weeks. But isn't it amazing at times that when we when we truly love people, it doesn't matter what our backgrounds are or where we're from or whether it's halfway across the world. There's something that God does when he leads us to people in whom we can love because we desperately want to see them come to faith in Christ. I would imagine that as I'm sharing these stories, there's probably someone that comes to mind to you tonight. They, they might actually be in this room, but it could be a coworker or a friend or a family member that is just like God's placed on your heart and your mind. And let me just encourage you in this moment, like the first and greatest thing that we can do is to pray for them. I think that's why Apostle Paul starts in verse 1 in chapter 10 and says, my, my, my greatest heart's desire, my prayer is for the Israelites because he's thinking of people, his friends, his family members. My prayer is for them to be saved. So who is that for you tonight that comes to your mind?
why don't we actually just pause for a moment and just pray for those people, that person that maybe has come to mind for you. If you would just bow your heads, we're just going to pause for a moment. Someone that you love, that you care for, just in the quiet of this time, just take them to the throne room of God. Do you cry out on their behalf to a God that loves them, cares for them, desperately wants to be reunited with them, you pray that their hearts might be open? They might willingly surrender to Christ. Would you now pray for your own boldness? Your boldness to continue to pray for them and share the gospel with them. God, would you do a work in the hearts and minds of the people in which we're praying tonight? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing someone come to faith in Christ, um, someone that you've been praying for, is an incredible experience. It is. Um, and, and also just knowing that, that you've maybe had a small part in what God is doing in the life of someone um, is just an awesome experience. It's incredible to be able to do that. Um, but let's be honest, it's not easy, right? I mean, pray for people, um, but there, there are tremendous obstacles in the way of people coming to faith in Christ. Many things that, that just stand in their way. Um, and I believe the Apostle Paul is really getting at this here in chapter 10. So he's got so his heart's desire, his earnest prayers that the Israelites, the Jews specifically, might have a saving knowledge of Jesus. They, they might be saved. But Paul has an issue with his Jewish friends. See, they thought they understood the way to everlasting. They, they thought they understood uh, the way of righteousness, but, but they had a complete misunderstanding of how this works, in a misunderstanding about how God works. And so we find this in verse 2. It says, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They're heading in one direction thinking, this is how I get righteousness. This is how I justify myself. This is how I come into a right standing with the Lord. This is how I walk with the Lord. But in fact, the way that they're going, the zeal in which they're after it, like, you can appreciate it, but the fact is that the, the direction they're going is the exact opposite to the way that God is. And so he addresses this then in Romans chapter 10. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm going to uh, show you a little something here, illustrate it on the screen. We understand that there is brokenness in our world. We understand that we live in an incredibly broken world, that all we have to do is turn on the news or look at the paper or to, um, you know, talk to the people around us to understand that, that 
that this is a broken world that we live in. But yet God created our world as we look in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that God created the world in perfection. Like he, he, he had a, a relationship with mankind, that he walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. He had a perfect relationship with them. And so we understand that the broken world that we now live in and the world that God created and his expectation of, of what our lives were to be was broken. And it was done so because of sin. And so we understand this because the gospel that we understand is one that saves people. We understand that the gospel is powerful. There is nothing like it in this world. That when we ourselves are broken people and we see the ideal of what God has and what sin has done to destroy that, we come to realize that the reason in which we are engaged in mission is so that we can see broken people come to healing, that we can see people who are dead in their transgressions come to new life. So we understand that the the gospel saves, and that's why we're engaged in mission. So why mission? It's because the gospel saves. The, the gospel in itself is simple. But you see, in Romans chapter 10, we see Paul illustrating that the Israelites, the Jewish people, have misinterpreted. They, they don't understand. They don't have a pure knowledge of what brings justification, what brings righteousness. And so in their brokenness, they understand that they're broken people. And so what they want to do is find a way out of that. But they're misled in how they're going to do that. So we find in uh, verse 3 then, Paul says, since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So in their own brokenness, they're, they're trying to find their way out. But Paul says they're doing it through their own self-righteousness. They build up a system in which they think that they can somehow escape from God's wrath and from this broken life. And so he says, now they've established their own righteousness. They're trying to find favor with God, but they're going in the wrong direction to get it. They're, they're relying on themselves to get there. But he also says that they've misinterpreted how the law is to help them. He said in verse 4, it says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So not only have they set up their own self-righteousness, their own pathway to find favor with God, but now they're also trying to find it through the law. So if they, they feel as though if they keep the 614 laws of the Old Testament, if they can keep those things up, somehow they'll find favor. But it too is relying on their own righteousness. It too is relying on themselves in order to escape the brokenness. He goes on to say in verse 5, it says, Moses writes about this, the righteousness that is by the law. It says, the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteous that is by, that is by, is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is an interesting thing that Paul uses here. Um, it's, it's actually a little, oops, it's a little obscure what Paul's trying to do, but he's, he's saying that people will go to all kinds of extremes in order to find favor with God. He's saying 
Some will say that they want to ascend to God, that they want to ascend on high and, and somehow try to bring Christ down to their level. Or they'll descend to the deep and try to find Christ there and bring him there. But again, all of those things are based on your own self-righteousness, on what you can do. It's by your own hands. It's by your own works. And Paul is saying, when it comes to your self-righteousness, when it comes to your adherence to the law, when it comes to all the extreme things that you're going to try to do to try to find favor with God or to bridge that gap or to, to fix the cure for the sickness that you have, he's saying over and over and over again, that is not the way. That is not the way. You cannot justify yourself. So Paul goes on, very simply, I think is a reminder to us and helps us understand that there is only one way. There's only one way in which we can find favor with God. There's only one way in which we can cure this sickness that we have. Paul goes on to point us to Jesus himself. In verse 8, he says, but what does it say? Which is a great question, right? He's talking to the Jews, and he's, he's saying, but what does it say? What, what do we find about this relationship with God? What do we, what do we find when we're, we actually go to the Scripture? He says, the word is near to you. It is in your mouth, and it is in your heart. That is a message concerning faith that we proclaim. So we will chase after all kinds of things. It wasn't just the Jews, the Israelites in this time that were chasing after self-righteousness. It wasn't just the, the Jews that were chasing after the law, trying to fix themselves and to cure this sickness inside, this brokenness. But it is us today, those who have never professed faith in Christ and submitted to his lordship, will constantly chase after things that will fix, attempt to fix the brokenness inside. We try to self-medicate and to begin trying to heal ourselves. Paul reminds us there is no healing without Jesus. So he points us to Jesus very simply, and he says, Jesus is near. You don't have to do these extreme things to try to capture Jesus. You don't have to descend to the deep or ascend on high to try to find him somewhere. He said, he is so close. He's so close to you. He said the gospel is so simple, but, but so many have misinterpreted or chased after all kinds of things and made it incredibly complicated. And Paul says the gospel is not complicated. It's simple. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. He says, it's simple. We profess and we confess. We profess and confess that we believe that Jesus is the Lord of all. There is no one on this earth that can save us from our brokenness and from our sin. We confess and profess that He is Lord, and we confess with our mouth, and we believe in our hearts. And what Jesus does then is He restores us 
to a right relationship, gives us purpose. Verse 11 says, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why do we do missions? Why do we engage in evangelism and overseas missions? Why do we engage in church planting? Why do we do those things? We do those things because we believe in the power of the gospel. We believe that there is nothing on this earth that can fix the brokenness, that can cure the disease of mankind. There is nothing that can do that except for the gospel. And we believe that it is simple, but it is also sweet. So I think many times we forget how far we've come. We can, we can say we believe that the gospel is simple. We can, we can illustrate it and try to understand the gospel and try to convey that to others, but I think sometimes we forget how sweet the gospel is to us. Do you, do you remember, uh, for those of you who are followers of Christ, do you remember when you placed your faith in Christ? Like, do you remember that moment, that season, or that day when that happened for you? Like, I, I remember it. Like, I was 11 years old, and I was at camp. I'd grown up in church my whole life, but um, it always seemed like it was something that my parents did. And as an 11-year-old at camp, I remember, um, you know, hearing the gospel very plainly, very simply that I was a sinner that needed a Savior and that Jesus had died on the cross for me and that because He was raised from the dead and paid the penalty um, on the cross for all of my debt, that now I could live in eternity with Him and be forgiven of my sins. The gospel is simple. But it was in that moment that I heard the gospel plainly and simply And then that day, at camp, as an 11-year-old kid, I remember hearing it and and thinking at that moment, that's right. Like, that's true. And I want that to be true for me today. And so I remember, you know, being in the back, you know, in the back of the little chapel outside, and and they're singing some hymn. I don't remember what the hymn was, but they asked anyone who wanted to put their faith in Jesus to walk down the aisle this is old school, okay? But walk down the aisle and, and, and pray with someone to give your, um, your heart to Jesus. And I remember as an 11-year-old child walking down that aisle and telling someone, I, I want to give my heart to Jesus today, and I want to be baptized. Like, I, I'm sure it's not the same story for you, but do you remember that day? Do you remember how sweet that moment was for you? where you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had saved you, that you didn't have to live in guilt or shame anymore. Do you remember that day? How sweet it was, how good it was, how right it is and felt in that moment? Friends, we need to remember. We need to remember that the gospel is not complicated. It is simple. It doesn't mean that it's not hard but it is simple and it is sweet. And we need to be reminded of that. It provides the fire for us 
So when we remember those things in us and how God has radically transformed your own heart and your mind, I mean, how much he has changed you. And I'm not talking like you were kind of sick and then now you're a little better. I'm saying you were dead and now you're alive. You were dead and now you are alive. That's the radical transformation of the gospel and what Jesus does in our lives. That's why we do missions, because we believe that's true. We believe that God is still at work using the gospel to change people's hearts and minds for eternity. But there's a problem. We believe that that's true, but there there is a major problem. And Paul tells us right up front in verse 14. He says, how can then someone believe and confess if they've never heard? I mean, this is great news, right? That Jesus saves, that he transforms people's lives, he takes you from death to life. This is the most amazing news that anyone could ever hear. The problem is, what if they never hear it? What if some never tells them? Paul says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We have the cure. We do. We have the cure for someone who is dying. Paul makes it clear that someone must be sent. A preacher or a public herald, someone that's a messenger of the good news, must be sent. The sent preacher or proclaimer must proclaim the good news. The proclaimed good news must be heard. The heard news must be believed. And the belief must be the kind that calls out for salvation from God. Sending, proclaiming, hearing, believing, calling on God. So I believe Paul offers us another reason why we engage in missions, and that is is that our Father is a missionary God who sends messengers. Our God, our Father, is a missionary God who sends us as messengers. I love this quote by David Bosch. He says, mission is not primarily an act of the church, but an attribute of God. Mission is who God is. It is part of his character and his attribute. The Old Testament, God is presented as a sovereign God who sins in order to express and complete his mission of redemption. The Hebrew uh, verb to send is found nearly 800 times in the Old Testament. Throughout all the historical books, God is ascending God. Through all the poetic books, God is ascending God. Through all the prophetic books, God is ascending God. Perhaps the most dramatic illustration of sending in the Old Testament can be found in Isaiah chapter 6. In this passage, we catch a glimpse of God's sending nature 
in his Trinitarian fullness, where he says, then I heard the voice of the Lord, Isaiah saying, I heard the voice of the Lord, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And to this, Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. In the New Testament, sending language is found not only in the Gospels, but also throughout the book of Acts and in each of the epistles. The most comprehensive collection of sending language is found in the Gospel of John. We find the word send or sent nearly, near, used nearly 60 times just in that gospel alone. The majority of uses refer to the title of God as the one who sends and of Jesus as this one who is sent. And then Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 20, verse 21, that he is not only sent by the Father, but now he is the sender. And he tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Our Father is a missionary God who chooses to send us as messengers to a lost and dying world, to our friends, to our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, and those around the world. Friends, it is no accident that you work the place that you work. It is no accident that God has placed you in a neighborhood with the people that you are neighbors with. It is no accident the family that you're born to. It is no accident. God purposely sends us to those places because our Father is a missionary God. He's always about sending His people, and He sends them with a message. The message is the hope of the gospel. It is the cure. Sometimes people don't know how sick they are. They wander this world like zombies, not knowing that they're actually dead. But we have the cure. We actually have the hope of the gospel that can awaken people to new life. And with that message, God sends us. He sends us. Now, I don't know where God has sent you to. I don't know what place, domain that God has enabled you to be a part of so that you can be a messenger of hope and of a cure to that place. But it is by no mistake that you were there. Whatever school, whatever workplace, whatever family, whatever neighborhood, you were sent. Uh, when I was in junior high, um, my parents had kind of a, uh, an awakening um, of, of a sense. They had, um, my dad worked as a factory worker, and um, he had begun leading some of his co-workers to Christ. He had, he had learned how to share the gospel and just was lit on fire. Like he was just, uh, so he was leading co-workers to Christ. It was a kind of amazing thing to see um, him really um, engaging with the gospel. And so as a seventh grader, my, my parents made a decision um, because of just my dad sharing the gospel and being excited about just evangelism and, and all this that they decided that they wanted to become missionaries. And so uh, my parents didn't have any um, formal religious education, so uh, my parents decided that we were gonna, he, my dad was gonna quit his job and we were gonna sell our stuff, pack our stuff up and move so that my parents could go to Bible college so they could train to be missionaries. Now, along the way, my dad had been doing research on, um, on our family heritage, and uh, I'm Scottish, a family of Scottish, and uh, 
and I, yes, I do have a kilt, and I wear it on special occasions. But um, we, uh, so we're Scottish, so my dad was doing this research, and so this, this whole thing of evangelism and, and, and sharing the gospel along with this study that my dad was doing on our heritage kind of collided together, and uh, my parents decided they wanted to be missionaries in Scotland. So the plan was to go to Glasgow, Scotland, um, and if you know anything about the UK or S- Scotland in particular, like it is a, a evangelical wasteland. Like it is, after the Reformation, like it just went further and further um, away from Jesus. And so it, it, is, it is a very unchurched and, and lost place. And so my parents decided they wanted to go to Glasgow. We went for a summer so that my dad could do research and we spent some time there and got to know people. And it, it indeed was a very lost place. And this, is, this has been 25 years ago. Um, so they were pursuing going on, on mission field, and my dad was going to Bible college. He graduated, um, and then uh, they went to pursue the mission field. That, for them, that meant support raising and getting ready to go. At the same time, um, while they started support raising, my dad started not feeling very well. He had some stomach problems, and he just couldn't quite get over it. And so he went to the doctor, and they diagnosed him with pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about pancreatic cancer, there's no cure for that. Like, it is, it is devastating. And so he did surgery right away and did chemo and radiation, and it put him into remission for a while. Um, but Scotland was off the table. Like, it was just like there's no pursuing that at all um, because we just knew it was a matter of time. And so uh, he went and pastored a little church in Indiana and led lots of farmers to Jesus, and it was an amazing time in his life. But then um, uh, the cancer came back just a couple of years later, and it hit his liver and the rest of his pancreas, and, um, and he died just a few months after that. And uh, so Scotland just was never in the picture. It just, you know, that was a dream that kind of died. Um, I was in school during that time when my dad got sick and then when he died. And so after, after he had died, it was that next semester, I was in chapel, and there was a, a woman who had come to share at the chapel. Um, she was speaking and, and talking about her and her husband's kind of missionary uh, life um, overseas. So she was sharing, and um, she had shared that her husband had actually died on the mission field, that they had surrendered their whole life to missions and sharing the gospel with people who did not know Jesus, and that her husband had gotten sick on the mission field and actually died in that country. And so she had come, and she had actually used the verse um, that was read here tonight, um, this verse uh, that's actually quoted, um, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so she came and shared her testimony and the story. And at the end of her time of sharing, um, she brought out a pair of shoes. And she said, "Um, these were my husband's shoes. Um, And she said, I just want to know who's willing to fill these shoes. Like someone has to go. Someone has to go to the people that have never heard the good news of the gospel. Who's willing to fill these shoes and go? And I mean, it was just an amazing testimony. And so I had went home and I shared it with Lori. And then later that week, um, when I was visiting with my mother, I'd shared with my mom. I said, oh, you're never going to, I just wanted to tell you about this chapel speaker and this verse, you know, um, out of uh, Romans and, and just this, you know, great thing and shared with her about the shoes and that kind of stuff. So for my graduation, uh, my mother... Um, surprised me. She had a plaque made, and on that plaque was this verse that was etched on the bottom that said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And on the plaque, 
she had mounted my dad's preaching shoes. And she used it just as a subtle reminder to me that when I looked at my dad's shoes and I thought about their call to, to preach the gospel and to share good news with people who they didn't even know but my parents deeply loved and the people that my dad led to Christ out on tractors and in the fields and in his church, like it was a reminder to me that there is still a mission that God has for us. There are still shoes that need to be filled. That God is still a missionary God. He is a God who sends his people. And he sends us to people who desperately need to hear the gospel. They're people that we love and care for. We love and care for. And he's asking us, he's calling us to fill shoes and to go and to live on mission. Let's pray together.